On this podcast, we went back in time to understand more about the rise of black exploitation and how that led to Rudy Raymore's cult classic film, Dolomite. We turned our microscope towards several pillars of the movement, like the music, role of women, kung fu, and Rudy Raymore himself. I'm going to be honest. When we first started this, I expected to be presented with the historical points of a radical but short-lived film genre centered on black talent. Instead, I was introduced to the ways that the black exploitation movement served as a framework for the world that many black Americans live in today. A world where black voices became the compass of cool and black style became best practice. A world where black people could buck tradition, create trends, and set precedents. I always knew I was a child of hip-hop, but truthfully, I'm a grandchild of black exploitation. We all are. The relationship between black exploitation and the hip-hop movement that we're still living in today is captured briefly in the 1990 classic film, House Party. You know, the movie that follows Kid, a nerdy high schooler, as he sneaks out to attend his friend Play's party. Early in the flick, before he's grounded for fighting at school, his pops, played by the late comedian Robert Harris, says that he was hoping the two could chill and watch Dolomite. Uh, there's a party tonight at Play's, I mean Peter's house. Can I go? Oh, man. I had plans for us tonight. I read a couple of videos. Dolomite, way down in the jungle deep. Badass lion stepped on the signifier monkey's feet. Even though House Party is damn near 30 years old at this point, that exchange exemplifies a bit of our current day circumstances when it comes to black exploitation. Many of us are living in our own time, enjoying and contributing to the music, art, style, language, and culture that our era has developed, which is what we're supposed to do. But let's be clear. It's important to follow the branches back to the roots. And much of our contemporary culture is rooted in the experience of black exploitation. Today, we see black exploitation play out both directly and indirectly across several mediums. Where they had the movie Shaft, we have Black Panther. Where they had Pam Greer, we have Meg Thee Stallion. And where they had Dolomite, we have the likes of Eddie Murphy. I had been a fan of Rudy's movies for years. I was like, this guy's got a great story. Nobody, nobody thought, you know, we'd be sitting here, you know, 35 years from now, from then, you know, making a movie about that guy and what he was doing. A lot of creators and fans are the offspring of parents who once said things like Jive Turkey and Foxy Lady and Give Me Some Skin. I fall into this bucket. While I was raised largely off of a diet of Jay-Z and Chris Rock, I can't ignore my life's raw ingredients, the elements that mix together to create my cultural food groups. Like car rides with my dad listening to Willie Hutch, or overhearing a Dolomite riddle when I really shouldn't have. This connection has never been clearer to me. And that's why in this final episode, we're discussing legacy. And to talk to me about black exploitation's lasting legacy, I have David Walker. David is a writer, filmmaker, and a black exploitation enthusiast. He's keeping the era alive as a writer on the Shaft comic book series and even took a stab at creating his own Dolomite comic. David walks us through the context black exploitation existed in and how it's influenced our world today. David, first and foremost, I want to thank you for being with us here today. Um, I guess I want to start with when you were coming up and really starting to pay attention to film and pop culture. What was it about black exploitation that stood out to you? And do you can you remember a moment specifically when you were like, oh, I, 
I'm seeing this. I, I'm recognizing that I'm seeing this. Well, you know, it's kind of funny because when I was a kid growing up in the 70s, um, I was aware of these movies, but I wasn't allowed to go see them. My, <laughs> my grandparents, you know, they had subscriptions to Ebony and Jet magazine. So that, that stuff was always prevalent in those magazines, which were in the household. They're the staple of every black household in, in America, especially during the 70s. And some of my older cousins would go see those movies and talk about them, but I wasn't allowed to see them. I knew what they were, and I wanted to see them so bad. And and most of them never showed up on TV. You know, this wasn't they, these weren't the sort of things that went into rotation on <laughs> in syndication in the seventies or the eighties. But then, you know, this miracle of home video happened in the late eighties, mid to late eighties, and th- those were some of the first movies I went out and rented. The movies that I, I would see ads for in the newspaper, or hear the commercials for on the radio, and I was like, "Yo, I'm finally getting to see this stuff." And um, you know, it was like the, the knowing about three the hard way as a kid. But not getting to see it until, you know, probably like I'm guessing like maybe 20 years old or so, which and it was as good as I thought it would be. Same with the Pam Greer movies, all of them. What do you feel like is the most common misconception or the most common gap in people's understanding when it comes to approaching black exploitation? There's so much negativity imposed on black exploitation. And I think that a lot of times it's it's difficult if you take somebody a contemporary audience right now, say someone who's 20, 25 years old, and you show them a movie from 1972 or 73, you know, and and they're only used to watching, you know, like Marvel movies, you know, Avengers Endgame or something like that, movies that cost $200 million. They're not going to know what to make of a movie that costs, you know, $200,000. And and I I think that that's it. and, And that carries over not just to black exploitation, but to film in general. There's a lot of people coming to movies and not really understanding the history of film or understanding the context of of um, of what's being depicted. And and that clouds their perception of, you know, um, what is good or what is bad. I, I teach part time and and some I have students who won't watch movies if they're in black and white. You know, which to me is the most ridiculous thing. I'm old enough to remember, you know, when I was a kid growing up, our TV was black and white. So everything was black <laughs> and white, you know. Um, and and to me, that whole notion of like, you're not going to watch black and white movies. Well, you mean you're not going to watch Casablanca? You're not going to watch Citizen Kane? You're not going to watch Sunset Boulevard, Double Indemnity? You're not going to watch the list goes on and on and on. And and it's like that dismissal is uh is problematic just like there's people who will dis- dismiss black exploitation you know there's a progression there's always a progression throughout the, the the course of film and in order to understand what you're watching today you need to look at how it relates to something from 20 years ago 30 years ago 40 years ago or even 100 years ago for that matter well let's take a look at how black exploitation may or may not exist today do you feel like there's films out right now or that have been out recently that um can be seen through the lens of black exploitation Oh, yeah, I, I think all of them can be. I think that I think every movie that came out, you know, that most people would argue that, that black exploitation died around 1979. And I, and I wouldn't argue against that. But what I would say is it didn't die so much as it just evolved into something else. And, you know, so you can look at movies from, say, the 80s, a movie like, say, Crush Groove with, you know, that had run DMC and and. Um, and the Fat Boys, or or uh, the Last Dragon with with Timac and Vanity, I think those movies were um, evolutions of black exploitation, just like New Jack City, or House Party, 
or or um you know any of those movies boys in the hood they were all evolutions of of the groundwork that the films of the 70s had paved just as the films of the 70s were an evolution of the movies from the 20s 30s and 40s right it's a natural progression and so you look at a movie say like training day which Denzel Washington won an Oscar for, or um, American Gangster, again, with, with Denzel and, and Russell Crowe. And those movies are straight up black exploitation movies, you know? I mean, um, American Gangster especially is like, you know, that's just like Black Caesar with a really big budget, you know? Training Day is definitely maybe my favorite movie. And yeah. there's times where you can see, like, clear, I mean, from literally the dress to, like, okay, maybe that's Shaft, right? But yeah. Then you watch even Dolomite and you're like, oh, like you can you can see the bridge and it's not it's not hard to find at all. No, not at all. And and I think where we're at now, what's interesting is that there's been some really financially successful films that have broken out of sort of a budgetary ghetto and a, uh, and, a and a financial return ghetto. There's there's sort of like, quote unquote, black movies are only going to make so much money. And, and that's all they were ever going to make. And so they don't put that much money into them and they don't get these wide releases. But I think within the last five, six years, we've seen some movies really break out of that mold and um, or out of those constraints. And of course, you know, those movies include like Get Out and Creed and, and Black Panther. But all of those movies, at the end of the day, you know, exploitation were movies that were produced and marketed towards a predominantly black audience. Um, now, you could argue that a lot of these successful films now, that's what they started out as, but they found a bigger audience. They were, that you can't just market to a black audience anymore. Now, you take a movie like Black Panther, and it was like, okay, we're going to make a movie for a black audience, but we're also going to make it something more. And, and in order for a movie to make a billion dollars, it needs to appeal to more than just you know, 100,000 black folks across America. Um, but but a lot of the same principles are there. It's just understanding that if you make a good film, if you make a quality film, you know, very successfully, um, you'll find that audience. You know, we want to switch gears a little bit and talk about your thoughts on Rudy Raymore's influence, um, both within black exploitation and outside of it. Well, Rudy was a Rudy was something else, man. I'm I, I'm I'm not gonna say I'm the world's biggest Rudy Ray Moore fan, but I'm pretty. <laughs> I love his work, and I think that he's I think he's never gotten the credit that he deserves. You know, there's new movies coming out with Eddie Murphy that Craig Brewer directed, and I'm hoping that that will go a long way to correct that. You know, we'll, we'll see we'll see what happens, but um, I think I think he was he was incredibly misunderstood then and now. Well, now it's going to change a little bit because he's largely been forgotten. And, and I'd like to see him get some credit where credit is due. When you say uh, credit, you know, in, in what capacity, in what forms? Like what did he offer uh, to either that was better than other people or different than other people? What did he do that that he was shortchanged? Well, for one thing, you know, Rudy uh, raised the money to make these movies himself. These were true these were as underground and guerrilla as films can get. And yeah, they're rough around the edges, especially that first film, Dolomite, is, is, is super low budget. It shows. It's up on the screen. Low production values. The acting's not the best. But, but there's an independent spirit there that, um, that, that shines through. 
And and he did something when everybody else said, you can't do it. Hollywood wouldn't do it. They wouldn't give him a break. They wouldn't make the movies that he wanted to make. And so he went out and he did it. And and that spirit is, you know, that's something that other black filmmakers had to do in the past, you know, starting in the 19, 1900s, the 19-teens, really, all the way through the 20s, the 30s, the 40s. It kind of died off significantly in the 50s and 60s as as Hollywood attempted to become more integrated. Um, but it, then you see that that same thing that he did carrying over, especially in, in hip-hop, starting in the... Um, you know, the, the late seventies into the early eighties. And I feel like if you, you know, Rudy is like in a lot of ways that conduit between uh, a couple different eras, not just the, the, the black exploitation era, the, the one of the conduits between that and say hip hop, but also a conduit from an older era of black film. And, and if you really study say the, the black films, of the thirties and forties, there's, there's some very visual, uh, distinctions and there's some tropes and conventions that that Rudy picked up and carried on, especially in uh, Dolomite and Human Tornado and Petey Wheatstraw to a certain extent. Not as much Disco Godfather, but um, you know, I've I've often felt that Rudy was more of a bridge to an older generation of black filmmakers and black film than he's ever gotten credit for being. And I stand by that. And, and, and him and I talked about that because I, I had the opportunity to get to know him. Uh, I met him back in the 90s and spent some time with him before he passed away in 2008. And, and we talked about, you know, I think, I think a lot of people would be surprised to know that, that there was a side of him that was, that was a little bit more serious than what he projected. But, you know, Dolomite was just a, a persona. It was just um, it was a character that he played uh, as part of his career. What did Rudy make of his his stance, his the way people sort of perceived his art? You know, because when you say that this bridge between sort of um, black film and I guess a lot of ways culture in the 30s and 40s. And in my time, just thinking of how hip hop Rudy Raymore feels and Dolomite feels, not only from the art form of what he's doing on camera, but also just the ingenuity of I'm going to go out and do it myself. I feel like I, you explaining it, I can see that bridge and I can see the bridge going forward. But how did he feel? That's a, that's a great question because I think he always, he, there was a point, you know, especially later in his life where, you know, there were a lot of um, hip hop folks who, who gave him credit where credit's due. And, and he, you know, they sampled him on his albums and, you know, he made little appearances in, in some of those low budget movies that came out in the 80s and 90s, stuff like that. So I think that there was some recognition of of what he had done, say, starting in about 1970 or 75, as the album started coming out, you know, his underground party albums and then and then the movies that he did. But I, I, I think that most people sort of look at him and his career as if it just sort of popped into existence and don't really look at like what had influenced him and how he brought those influences uh, of, of things that he had seen and been a part of when he was younger. And, and I remember talking to Rudy about that. I hadn't seen him in a while and I sat down with him and I, and I said, Rudy, I've been thinking about this a lot. And, and I, I was wondering, you know, how much of this stuff was, you know, what you did in these movies was, was um, influenced by the movies from this old era that, that, because I, I think there's a connection there, but I've never read it anywhere. I've never seen anybody talk about it. And, you know, he's like in his eighties at this point and his eyes got really big. And he was like, 
you're the first person to ever, you know, really seriously talk to me about it. And he was like, you know, this is this, these are movies I watched when I was growing up. And he said, it's all there. This is what I was trying to do. And, and I felt really good about that. I felt good that, um, that I had seen that. But that, the, the, the thing to think about is that as much as I love black films of the 70s, I love film in general and I love black film in general. So I, I never just watched everything from 1970 to 1979, you know, I watched a ton of other stuff and I began to see connections. I began to see, um, recognize, again, conventions and tropes. And, and so I think that Rudy, as much credit as he, as he's gotten for being an influence on hip hop and an underground comedy and, you know, sort of the chitlin circuit or the, the foul mouth comedians, as much as he gets credit for that, and it's all well-deserved credit, he doesn't get credit for, being the conduit from that that era past into the 70s. Um, you know, nobody talks about the Chitlin circuit anymore, but Rudy helped keep that alive. You know, he gave work to other comics who were part of the Chitlin circuit. Um, I want to switch gears a little bit and talk um, about your comic for Shaft. Mm-hmm. How does the comic medium do justice to black exploitation? In what ways does it do they, if they were a Venn diagram, each with their own circle, what, in what ways does the overlap actually um, help the storytelling of black exploitation? How does this? How do they fit together? Well, you know that's a, that's a really good question. Um, I I I'm still trying to figure that one out myself because I feel like um, the 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 comic audience is is shrinking every single day. You know, it's just mm-hmm. like there's there's fewer and fewer people actually buying books and reading them. They they they're reading them on their their um, tablets and their laptops and their smartphones, but they're not buying physical books. There's not as many people buying comics and graphic novels. And and I think that, that the problem with trying to translate black exploitation is um, trying to get people to even understand what it is. A lot of comic readers, you know, when Shaft came out, people would come up to me at conventions, I'd have the books on my table, and they would go, you know, young people especially be like, Shaft, what's that? This looks like Black Dynamite. And, you know, it was like, well, no, you know, Black Dynamite is kind of a parody of this. And, you know, and, and I've actually sold books on, you know, that sort of pitch by saying, yeah, well, if, if you like Black Dynamite, imagine if there was, if it wasn't a joke, you know, imagine if it was really serious. And they're like, oh, okay, you know, imagine if it was a crime thriller. Um, but a lot of it is, is we're sort of in this era where we have to um, educate people. I, I, I'm supposing you probably had to educate people even back in the 70s as to what black exploitation was about. Now, the good thing about comics is that if you if you can make it work, it's actually a lot more affordable to make than film. It's more cost effective to yeah. make than making a movie. But you're also limiting it because there's, you know, there's only so many people that are reading comics these days. What does black exploitation tell us about ourselves past and present when we look at it today? Man, we just love to escape, don't we? And it it ain't just black folks. People just love to escape. They love to be pacified. And and the older I get, the more grumpy I get, the more insightful I get, the more I see that pacification. Um, People want to escape. They want to see people win. They want to see the underdog win. It doesn't matter if the underdog is 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 Rocky or is Superfly. You know, they want to see somebody who's who's uh, starting at the bottom and makes it to the top. I like that. What do you think black exploitation's legacy is? 
Well, if it's up to me, it's still being defined and still being written. But I think that legacy is is that it was, if nothing else, it was um, it was a time when the studios and distributors were able to prove that um, you could make movies starring black folks and market it towards a black audience and make money off of it. You know, we'll say between 1970 and 1975, they made close to to 300 of these movies produced and released. And and the amount of revenue they generated was enough to make sure that companies like Warner Brothers and Paramount and Universal and even smaller companies like AIP were able to stay in business at a time when, you know, companies were having some serious financial problems. Companies like Fox you know, was selling off part of their back lot and selling off props and 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 um, and actual land where they they used to film movies because there were so many box office bombs and and you know you make a movie like say Superfly you know which is made for under a million dollars and then makes like say fifteen or twenty million like that's that's not bad. Final question: We're asking okay. all of our guests this across our episodes. Um, throughout this conversation, you've mentioned a couple films, but are there any that you didn't mention that are on your black exploitation watch list? Um, the top of my list is always uh, the spook who sat by the door, which is uh, I don't even know if it's on video anymore. It's, I don't think it's streaming anywhere. Um, but that's that's one of my favorite movies of all time. That's uh, 1973. Ivan Dixon directed that across 110th Street. 1972 is a, is an underrated crime classic. I think it's one of the best crime thrillers of the 1970s. And it's also, you know, it's got this great soundtrack by Bobby Womack and Peace. Um, so those two, I love the Mac, you know, again, it's about a pimp. Is, is it, does that make it, it it's, it's certainly not a politically correct movie, but, but it is an amazing film. Um, Cooley High is one that never gets enough love. And, and I think that that, if you, you know, John Singleton, who passed away this year, if you look at his debut film, Boys in the Hood, it um, it takes most of its major story beats directly from Cooley High, which I, I again, I think is, a, is an underrated classic. But I also think that like of, you know, going back to Rudy Ray Moore in the Dolomite movies, the sequel, Human Tornado, is, um, I, I mean, I wouldn't watch it in mixed company. But I watch it with some of my friends on a regular basis and we just love it, you know. So I think a lot of it is just about, um, you know, again, knowing how to watch movies. And some people just go into it. You don't you can't go in and watch a movie from 1973 with a, you know, 2019 attitude and and, and that sort of thing. Um, and, and then again, anything with, you know, Pam Greer, especially her her movies with director Jack Hill coffee or foxy brown i mean those movies are, are straight up exploitation and they're sexploitation but but i just love them you know i i just um there's something about pam greer with a shotgun killing all the people that that did her wrong it's like just badass you know, it just speaks to me yeah well david thank you you've um we got to go through a couple of my interests we got to talk comic books a little bit a little bit of soundtracks um and thank you for just bringing us into black exploitation both past and present thank you Thank you all for tuning in. Share your thoughts about the show by tweeting our friends at Strong Black Lead. This show is a collaboration between Netflix's Strong Black Lead and Pineapple Street Studios. Special thanks to executive producers Jasmine Lawson, Jenna Weiss-Berman, 
and Max Linsky. Shout out my producers, Agarena Shishagre and Jess Jupiter. Our original music is by Daoud Anthony. Tell your friends about the show and make sure to rate and subscribe. There's something about Dolomite on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever else you get your podcasts.